Hey everyone, just a heads up to let you know there was a bit of a glitch in the matrix with the audio in this episode, but we didn't want you to miss the incredible Dan Pfeiffer. So as they say, the show must go on. Thanks for your understanding. Oh, hello. Hi. We were just having a very serious conversation about if we were a Muppet, which Muppet would we be? Like, like a very deep, very deep and what thoughts. what did you choose? He was like, maybe you're that eagle. I was like, the mean eagle? <laughs> I'm worried I'm transitioning to be the old guys in the balcony. So <laughs> that's where I'm going to end up. Yes. I know. It's so true. <laughs> Hello, and welcome to the Politics Girl podcast. I'm your host, Lee McGowan. Let's get into it. Today's pod is a candid conversation with Dan Pfeiffer. Dan was White House Director of Communications under President Obama, and then Senior Advisor to the President for two years after that. He's the co-host of Pod Save America, the best-selling author of Yes, We Still Can and Untrumping America, as well as the popular political strategy newsletter, Message Box. And I'm having him on to talk about messaging and how, at this crossroads of American democracy, we can convince people to care. It's the work I do every day and the question Dan tried to answer when writing his new book, Battling the Big Lie, How Fox, Facebook, and the MAGA Media are Destroying America, which he just dropped last week. Here we are, right in the middle of the January 6th hearings, which is essentially a way we could get the country back on the same page, and yet the right-wing media already has their narratives about it. They aren't covering it live, and their audience will only ever hear commentary on cherry-picked information. How do we handle that? I thought Dan might be the perfect person to give us some insight on how to address disinformation that is ravaging the country and how we possibly fight back. So without further ado, please welcome my guest today, best-selling author, award-winning host, and long-term political expert, Dan Pfeiffer. Welcome, Dan. Hi. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for doing this with me. I'm so happy you're here. I was really excited. I really love you. I love what you're doing, and you're so smart. It's very nice of you. I think what you're doing is so cool, so I'm very excited to be here. I've been listening to Pod Save America since your very first episode, and I remember at the time thinking... This is the future, right? This is how we're going to get our information out there. It felt new and fresh. And in, in a way, how our media had gotten sort of stale, it felt like this is how real people are going to be engaging in the future. And then tons of people, including myself, followed in your footsteps. So are you noticing such a difference from when you started Pods of America to now? Yeah, the, you know, the progressive media ecosystem is still a fraction of the right-wing media ecosystem, but it has grown so much in the last, basically since 2017, as more and more people, you know, really on their own, not being told by the party leadership or anyone else, has started just creating their own content and building a following, right? Like, it's obviously what you're doing, Midas Touch, I'm just talking to Brian Tyler Cohen, a bunch of really smart people who've just said, we're not going to wait. We were frustrated with the messaging. We're frustrated at losing the information wars, and we're just going to start doing stuff. And I think shocked as we were at Pots of America at the hankering and a hunger for like sort of unfiltered, you know, hopefully authentic sounding progressive messaging. And it's really taken off. And like we have a lot of work to do, but we've made more progress than I could have hoped in just a few years. I, I totally agree. It's uh, just filling a vacuum where you knew a voice was needed. And, you know, we all started it from a different place, but most of us just started it from pure passion. And I think that's the authentic uh, side that appeals to people. Okay, so you have a new book coming out, which is called Battling the Big Lie, which is basically how the right wing built a massive billionaire funded disinformation machine that was basically powerful enough to bend reality to win in 2016 and then nearly steal 2020. And quite frankly, if we leave it unchecked, 
it's this kind of weaponized disinformation might be powerful enough to take 22 and then give them 24. So your premise in the book is basically that this isn't something that just happened overnight or post the 2020 election with the big lie. This is decades of work in the making, right? Much like how the right wing put decades of work into remaking the courts in their image so they could fight their battles with minority sentiment in the country. Um, so in your opinion, this has been a long time coming. That's right. I sort of, I decided to write the book after I spent 20 years in democratic politics, working in campaigns, working in the White House, working on Capitol, sort of watching the Republicans slowly build this machine to the point where in 2016, as you mentioned, they bet reality. They dominated the political conversation. They made it about immigration and the wall and Hillary's emails. They spread conspiracy theory, conflicting conspiracy theories about Hillary. And on some days, she was a criminal mastermind guilty of murder and drug trafficking. And on other days, she was enfeebled from tra traumatic brain injury she'd suffered six years earlier or whatever. Like the, it never had to answer for those contradictions, right? Spread disinformation that Trump has been endorsed by the Pope and Hillary had been endorsed by ISIS. And that, you know, I remember even stumbling in that election on a story that I even believed for like 15 seconds was real. It was from an innocuously named Denver news outlet that was definitely not the Denver Post, that the FBI agent responsible for investigating Hillary's emails had been found dead in their apartment. Completely made up, not true. <laughs> Flash forward to 2020, you know, Donald Trump is in the middle of this pandemic that he has screwed up. It's killed hundreds of thousands of Americans. The economy's in the toilet. By every understanding of the fundamentals of American politics, he should lose by a significant amount. And he comes within 40,000 votes of winning in part because he rewrote the, the history of the pandemic, who was responsible for large swaths of the electorate, and then used this massive, I call it the mega megaphone, sort of the conglomerate of Fox, Breitbart, Ben Shapiro, all, all these entities that are using Facebook and other social media sites to spread their message. We made it so that to create this image of America as like this crime infested place where Democrats were trying to defund the police, right? Which is like convinced large swaths of voters, even segments of Joe Biden's voters, people who voted for Joe Biden anyway, believed he was a supporter of defunding the police, something that every media outlet said wasn't true, every fact check said wasn't true, and yet people still believed it. And then, this is where I decided to write the book right after the election as the big lie was taking off. And I was watching this where you had this election that was close, but not that much closer than Trump's win in 2016, not that much, so less close than George W. Bush's victory in 2000. And you had no evidence of fraud, Republican election officials testifying to the integrity of the election, Republican-appointed judges, including Trump's Supreme Court, dismissing every claim of fraud. And yet, 70% of Republicans believed that lie, many of them so much so that they tried to murder Donald Trump's own vice president and storm the Capitol in the footage we saw earlier this week in uh, the 1-6 hearing. And like, that is so powerful and so dangerous. That I want, and I, my takeaway has been that a lot of Democrats don't understand how it works, where it came from, who paid for it. And then the much harder question that I try to address in the book is what we can do about it. So I wanted to kind of lay that out there. I, I sort of refer to it as like a wake-up call and a call to arms, because I think if we don't do a better job in the information wars, that we are going to, as you said, lose in 22, lose in 24, and we're going to just, the, the big lie, big lie 2.0 is coming, and they might have the power to deny the rightful winner of the presidency of the White House in a few years. 
Right. I mean, this is what happens when you no longer stand for anything. If you talk about what the Republicans stand for these days, they really don't have very much to offer the country. So they're looking out for themselves and the rich people that keep them in power and the people that they would consider real Americans, right? This white Christian nation that's been overtaken by this multiracial, pluralistic society that they have no interest in. And so for them, the way to get power back is through these culture war grievances and conspiracy theories and undermining the election system itself. And their messaging is what drives that because it's not policy. It's not plans for the country. It's the messaging of what's going wrong, right? To paraphrase, I think, what you said in your book, the Democrats spend 99% of their time trying to figure out what to say, and then 1% of the time trying to figure out how to get people to hear what they want you to say. And clearly that ratio doesn't work, right? We just don't get it the way the Republicans get it. Um, Because it's a discipline to keep on message the way the Republicans do, and it's a discipline Democrats do not have. So what in God's name is wrong with us? Dan. Dan. I think uh, <laughs> what do you guys think is wrong with this is a great that's is a great way to frame that question. Um, there are a couple of like challenges we have as a party. Uh, one is for too long, too many Democrats have viewed messaging as public relations, right? In press management, what interviews do we do? How do we how do we get CNN or the New York Times to cover what we're doing? When do we schedule our speech so that it, it'll get the most TV coverage and all of that? And Republicans view messaging as information warfare. It is a, they are trying, they view it as a, as like high intensity information warfare in the digital age. And we have not adjusted our mentality. There are many people in our party, mostly of a younger generation, new people, some of whom have come into the process, yourself, the folks that might have, t- might have taught you included, who got in the process after 2016, who have a different mentality. But, you know, our party is, for as much as I, respect and adore a lot of our party leadership, they are from like three eras of media ago. And so while some of their staff, like who many of whom I know and I've worked with, they get it and they're trying to push. But the natural mentality against most Democrats is the way you get your message out is you say the most, the, you, you, you say, you spend all your time and energy, you figure out what to say. You find the perfect thing to say. And we're very good at actually figuring out what to say a lot of the time. And we know who we who needs to hear that message, right? It's these people who we are trying to convince to voters, people we're trying to convince to vote for us. Then we take that perfect message and we hand it to the New York Times or CNN, people who do not share our interests, nor, nor should they. That's not their job. It's not their job to get selected. And who we say, go take this message to those people. And we just hope it gets there. And it's insane. It's an ins- when you say it that way, it seems insane. And particularly when you realize that the people we need to reach most, particularly disengage, people disengaged from the political process, are the ones who trust the traditional political media the least. So we're saying, hey, you, take this message. I hope you don't put any of, you know, run it through your filter in a way that's not good for us. And it's trying to go get deliver to these people who are hard to reach, who don't really pay attention to you and don't trust you when they do, and then hope that that's going to work for us. We don't, Republicans, when they want to get their message out, they have these channels to reach, to get it to them directly. We do not have that and we have to build that up. No, we absolutely do not have that. And I think that's why some of us are here doing what we do, because I feel like the Democrats often have too many focus groups, too many cooks in the kitchen, too many let's not say the wrong thing. How does this play? Let's get everyone's opinion. And by the time they figure that all out, they miss the moment. Like I'm thinking recently about this new Ohio transgender athlete bill, which is 
you know, it's it's a sickening bill. It's a yeah. horrifying bill. And I feel like that shouldn't take a long time to market the response to it. It should be, this is shocking. What are we doing? We are outraged. This is not what we stand for. And yet we kind of come out of there with nothing. We often say nothing because we don't want to say it wrong. So we don't say anything or we're workshopping the message for so long that we miss the moment. And when we don't respond, it starts to feel like we're not getting it, that the Democrats don't get it. And then we have an authenticity problem, you know? And I think when we don't speak when people are outraged, we're not just missing the moment to connect with people, but we are missing the moment to reiterate what side we're on, that the Democrats are on your side. We feel this way, the same way you do, viscerally about this book banning or about this uh, Roe v. Wade situation or about this transgender bill. And the Republicans never stop talking. And I think we don't talk enough. Yeah, we, that, that's exactly right. We have a couple of challenges there. And I used to work in Senate leadership many, 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 many years ago. And in order to get, if you were to sit in the Senate leadership right now and you're in Senator Schumer's office, you're like, we need a caucus message. And we need Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren to sign off on it here. And we need Joe Manchin to sign off on it there. Like that is in and of itself going to be verbal applesauce, right? And that is that is a challenge our party has, Republicans don't have, right? The ideological, we, yeah. are, we have a much more, we're much more heterogeneous ideologically, demographically, geographically. We have to, we know that we have to turn out a base, which is in many cases quite progressive. And in order to win the Senate, we have to appeal to voters in states that are five to seven points more conservative than the average Democrat. And so we have all of these challenges that make it very hard. I do th agree with you that we overthink it sometimes and we should just get out there. The Republicans don't actually have these meetings to figure it out. They just have, they let the market decide. Everyone just goes out and, say, and says stuff. And it's sort of like the, it's the messaging equivalent of like ABC testing something where it's like whatever it starts to get traction, they do that. Right. And like we, I think we just have to be a little less afraid and a little more just fast and authentic. And I think, you're the example you pick on whether it's Ohio or any of these other anti-trans laws is a perfect example of one challenge we have is there's a learned helplessness among some Democrats about cultural issues. This view that if it's a cultural issue, it's inherently bad for us and good for Republicans. And that is just simply not the case, right? On trans issues, there is an overwhelming opposition to what the Republicans want to do. They do. The, the public does not believe that government should be deciding which sports leagues youth participate in. Right? And there should be laws that say that you have to be in the boys' soccer youth soccer league or the boy or the girls' t-ball team or whatever else. Like they do not want the government doing that. They do not believe the government should decide what teachers say in the classroom. They do not believe the government should decide which books are in the library. And we can win those battles. Like the the. The instinct that focusing on economic, populist economic issues is better for us is that that has like that has credence in public opinion research. Like that is true because our party is united around economic issues and we are divided on some cultural issues, but we don't get to pick the fights, right? We live in a media environment where cultural issues like that are the ones that trend and go viral and get attention. And so we have to figure out how to win them. And we're certainly not going to win them by sitting them out. And so like we should every, like my theory of this upcoming election is the only way we have a chance is to, is to convince the people who won the house for Democrats in 2018 and won the white house and Senate for Democrats in 2020, that the stakes of this election are incredibly high because the danger 
that you were so afraid of from Donald Trump still exists. And to do that, we have to show, we have to prove to the electorate that the Republicans are dangerous, out of touch, MAGA extremists. And every single opportunity, like we, you go into every day saying any single thing that proves that point, we jump on and we jump on right away. Oh, some Tennessee state senator said he wanted to burn books. We jump on that, right? They pass this law. We jump on that. You know, in Texas, they're going to start trying to criminally investigate the parents of trans kids. We're going to jump on that, right? Like every single thing we jump on because that you know what your narrative is. And those are the best campaigns are when you know the exact message that you want to hammer your opponent with. And any single thing that you think like, gives you an opportunity to you drive that home, you take it. And you don't have to think about it. If it, maybe it works in this case, maybe it doesn't, but you're better off trying than not trying. Well, I hope we do try because I actually get pretty frantic when I hear people talking about it being about inflation um, and gas prices, because first of all, we lose on that. But secondly, as a woman in America, I'm like, I, I could literally care less about paying more at the gas pump if I don't have fundamental rights to my own body and neither do anybody else. You know, I really don't care about the cost of celery as much as I do about not having a democracy, about people's votes not counting or being thrown out. And so I get frantic when I think about people who are trying to bring it back down to um, an election that we understand, you know? Oh, we're going to talk about the economy. We're going to talk about um, inflation. And I just don't think that that's where we're at. I think we're not meeting the moment if that's what we're talking about. And I also think we're going to lose if that's what we're talking about. My my question is, though, what do we do with a Republican Party that is so far down its walk into the disinformation and lie world that you can show them the truth? You can say, here you are saying the exact opposite, or here is the proof that what you're saying is entirely wrong, and they no longer even feel shame about it. They double down on it. They're like, yes, well, that's what you think, and this is what I think. And then the people listening think, well, that's what I think too, so that must be the truth. And we're past what can be proved. So how does truth find its way into that? How do we put truth back into the American consciousness where it matters? I think we set ourselves up for failure if the idea is that we're going to, quote unquote, deprogram the most far right MAGA voters, right? Where the idea is like, we're going to, the people who storm the Capitol, who, you know, put aside the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers, but a lot of people who showed up that day, maybe, maybe they didn't actually enter the building, but showed up at that rally in March there, were people who sincerely believed that the election was stolen because people in news outlets that they trust told them a lie they knew was false. And maybe we can convince some of those people if we can have a media environment that is more balanced. But ultimately, our goal, in my, my goal, I guess my goal is, I come at this from the perspective of someone who wants to defeat this Republican Party. I'm not trying to solve society's ills. I'm not trying to return, you know, quote unquote, truth to be the dominant language in America. I think this Republican, this version of the Republican Party has to be defeated and they have to be drummed out of political power in this country. And I don't think we can do that if we let them decide what this election is about. So I want Democrats to build up a media environment where we were competing, right? Where they can say something is true and we, and we can say something is false and they at least hear us. Right now, they are not hearing contradictory information. And there are two, there's, there's a couple groups of people, right? There are the people who like live inside the right wing information level. They have chosen 
to live there. They watch Fox. They listen to Mark Levin. They subscribe to Ben Shapiro's podcast. They have decided, I don't trust the press. This is all I care about. I'm a partisan Republican. But there are a lot of people who are consuming this right-wing disinformation and propaganda organically. Right, either Fox is on in the you know at the Jiffy Lube in their town or at the or the diner. They hear it from uh, people in their community, but more importantly, they're on Facebook and they're just going through Facebook. They're looking at their friends' kids. They're finding out whose birthday it is, and they are seeing this right wing disinformation, and it is getting to them. And they're seeing no contradictory information. Right, they're just seeing these headlines that that could be from innocuously named fake local news funded by Republican billionaires that the election was stolen or, you know, it's all very clever. It's like box of, you know, whole box of ballots found outside Chipotle, right? All these things. And they never see any other information because the Daily Wire and Dan Bongino people have much larger reach on Facebook than CNN and the New York Times combined. And so we just got to get our, we at least give like, we have no chance that they can't hear our message. So we got to make sure that they hear our message, right? And so that's sort of where... We, we are. And maybe some people will still believe conspiracy theories, as they always have in this country, whether it's JFK or the moon landing or Elvis is still alive or whatever else. So some people will always believe that. But we want to find the other people who are reachable, who are currently not hearing what we have to say and choosing the other side. Well, I mean, in your book, you suggest that the Democrats just don't seem to understand how powerful Facebook really is and the non-mainstream media really is, and that they are very good at promoting things like you said, like what you call the MAGA megaphone, right? This Fox News, it's not just Fox News, it's Breitbart, it's Daily Wire, it's digital outlets, it's people like Ben Shapiro and these guys, they're happy to promote them, even if they don't agree with everything they say, as long as they're pitching that Democrats are bad, this kind of messaging that they like, they're happy to promote them in a way that our side doesn't do. And so you talk about how we need to sort of conceptualize um, a different way to message and highlight um, people that are pushing our message out there that aren't from the mainstream. That's right. That's exactly right. Um, the the Facebook algorithm is overwhelmingly biased towards right wing content. They the way they monetize is outrage, and that and that's automatically benefits the other side. Our one response to that that a lot of progressive had is to simply disengage from the platform. And I'm not telling an average person who wants to doesn't want to spend their time consuming toxic messaging on Facebook to get back on Facebook, but the, but party actors, uh, you know, activists, we need to engage more on that platform because we got to, Facebook reacts to the amount of content you put in the system. And if we're not putting content in the system, it's going to keep benefiting the other side. The other piece of this is everyone in the party from funders, to the white house to People who are volunteers uh, and activists have to embrace progressive media, funding it, subscribing to it, patronizing it, sharing it, right? We need, some people, like you hear this all the time, this is a constant thing. I'm sure you hear this, we're Pots Americans. You're just preaching to the choir. Because obviously the people who download a podcast from a bunch of Obama aides that is mean to Trump agree with us. But that's okay. You have to preach to the choir. Right, because up till recently we've been relying on Chuck Todd to preach to our choir. That's not a good idea. And the other it's part not a of good this, idea, Dan. It hasn't worked out well for us, right? And the other part of this is the difference between with the, how the right thinks and the left thinks is when so during the one six hearings, 
Tucker Carlson had a show because Fox wasn't airing them. And Tucker Carlson had on a, a guy who spread the conspiracy theory that the FBI was involved in making January 6th happen. There was an inside job of some sort. Now, Tucker Carlson has that person on not just to pollute the minds of the 4 million people who watched. It is because he knows that those, each and every one of those 4 million people are going to take that message or they're going to give it. They're going to tell their wife. They're going to post it on Facebook. They're going to mention it when they're sitting around having breakfast with a bunch of their friends or whatever else. They're going to spread that. Too often, I think, Democrats have thought about the audience. And in media, you know, even progressive media people have thought about the audience as the end point. We're going to reach these 1 million people, these 100,000 people. When what we're trying to do is trying to give them a message and information that they can share with their networks in any way they do that. If they're doing it at scale by posting on Facebook or they're just having conversations, we want to tell you what's happening, why it matters, and if possible, how to talk about it in ways that are the most helpful. And so that is, a, that is sort of the mentality that we have to adopt is we have to think about every single person who hears our content as a potential messenger for the party. It's like their own little Jen Saki or whatever else who's going to communicate that message to people. No, I say this all the time. I actually did a whole rant called preaching to the choir yeah, because people do say that. They say, why are you bothering? You know? Um, and I always say, you know, if you follow that analogy through, right, the people that are in the choir are the people that show up every week. They're the people that are committed to the word. They want to sing about the word. They want to do the thing. So you should be preaching to the choir. You should make the choir happy. You should give them stuff that they're passionate about. You should make them want to sing more and want to do more. Because if we've, you know, watched Sister Act, you know, like we know a good choir can bring people into the church, right? You want to bring people into the church. You want those pews filled. You want them out there in the community saying, come and hear what we're saying. Come and do what we're talking about. Because... It also goes to my point that we're all responsible for our people, right? So if I know what's going on, then I can talk about it at dinner. When I hear it on the radio, it doesn't go right over my head because I don't know what we're talking about. When somebody says something that's clearly wrong, I can say, actually, that's not what happened. I remember so clearly when we talked to my mother-in-law years ago and she said she liked the Affordable Care Act, but she didn't like Obamacare, right? (laughs) And they were the same thing. And that happens all the time. And if you know... If you've been told, then you can correct someone in real time and start changing minds out in the community. That it's not just about hearing it the first time. It's about how many people hear it after you, like a phone tree. You know, if you tell five people the real story and then they tell five people and then they tell five people, then you can really get the message out there. And I think that's something that we're behind on, but something that we can absolutely do. And I know there's a section in your book about how to talk to people we disagree with and I think about this all the time because despite the fact that I personally push back on people all the time, I am sometimes at a total loss about how to deal with friends and family who are really way down the right wing rabbit hole, you know, people that really, really are committed to Fox. And I mean, I do this all day long and I have beloved family members that quote Janine Pirot to me and I think... I don't know how to, I I actually don't know how to address this because if you think what she's saying is exactly right, I'm not sure how to even approach it. And I think maybe that goes back to what you said before. We're not going to convince the diehard MAGAs. We have to convince the people that are independents, the people who don't vote, which is really the group I think we should be going after um, because they're the biggest group altogether. So I think maybe we don't waste our time on the people that are well lost and we go looking for the people that are just not found yet. 
that, I think that's exactly right. Like you're not going to, if someone is decide, like they're just, they're hardcore Republicans and they're looking and that is their belief. That's how they identify. That is, that is the, the tribe they have chosen to be a member of. And maybe it's the, someone their entire, their entire family is and has been their whole life. And they're looking for reasons to justify that. And with Donald Trump, that becomes more challenging in some ways. And so you start, that's how you end up down the path of some of these conspiracy theories, because in order to justify supporting someone like Donald Trump with his behavior, his corruption, his lack of qualifications, you need to believe, and you you do that because you can never possibly see yourself supporting a Democrat. So that's why you need this apocalyptic view of America, that it's the change is so bad. And there are these actors out there that could be elite billionaires, anti-Semitic conspiracy theories, a wave of immigrants coming to stamp out real Americans, crime in the cities, Antifa. You had to, like, in order to justify, and this is a, like, this is sort of the Christian nationalism people have been talking about recently, it's, which answers the question of how is it that these evangelical Christians who go to church once a week and believe so passionately in these things support someone like Donald Trump? It's because you've convinced yourself that the world is so dangerous that I can compromise on all these other things for this one person who I believe will protect me. And we're not going to convince all of those people. I don't think we have to. And people like one of the questions we get all the time at Potsy America shows is like, I'm going home to Thanksgiving. My uncle loves Sean Hannity. What do I tell him? And one of my answers sometimes is, you know what? You don't have to talk about politics at Thanksgiving table. You don't have to do it. It is fine not to do it. You don't have to ruin your Thanksgiving, ruin the, the rest of your family's Thanksgiving. But one thing you can do is you can go out, find two of your friends who weren't planning on voting, convince them to vote, and cancel out your uncle's vote, right? Like, that is the way to think about it. It's like, because I think we feel like we have to save all of these people from the sort of thing, and we can't. And it's not necessarily required or healthy to, uh, to do that. So think in terms of people who are persuadable. And I think the most persuadable people and the people where you can have the most impact is finding someone who you know, and they may even have voted, especially in this upcoming election, maybe they're the people that you saw, you've, your friends who voted for Biden in 2020 or, or even volunteered with you at phone banks in 2020 who have disengaged since then because either they think the threat's over or they're frustrated about things that haven't been accomplished and get that turned out. And then you don't have to worry about, uh, you get two of them, you don't have to worry about your MAGA uncle or, you know, dentist or whatever these days. God, your MAGA dentist, he's the worst. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, ultimately, I think, especially for leadership, because I think one of the things that's good in your book is that you're not just talking to us regular folks, you're also yeah. talking to politicians and the media themselves, you know, and a lot of this is media and PR. I always say that the Republicans are fantastic at sales. I mean, they're just great at selling the message and we're not, you know, and we live in a capitalistic society, right? Sales is essential. You're selling your message. We just, living here in LA, we just saw Caruso almost win the LA mayor outright because he spent $41 million on attack ads and he's not even a Democrat. Like it is the most bananas thing, but it works. So you can't just pretend it's not going to work. It does work. We need to, here we are on the democratic side and we have the, the liberal values and the humanity and we have the more popular points of view right across the country. And yet we're fighting somebody who has a better set of skills than us. And I often think that it's a little bit like for the young people who don't know what I'm talking about, when movies first came out that we could watch them, they were on VHS. But really, VHS launched at exactly the same time as Betamax, and Betamax was a superior product, right? And I think about this all the time. 
VHS was not the superior product, but they had a way better marketing plan. They came out way, with way more titles right away, faster, bigger, better, made the machines look good. And beta just went under. And I don't want the Democrats to be beta just because we couldn't sell, because we have the stronger army. We have the better ideas. We have the majority sentiment of the country. And yes, the uh, you know the system is in some ways against us with the electoral college and the strength of the Senate. But we could still win on messaging if we get it right. And I don't want us to turn into kind of the Betamax of political parties where we all live in an autocracy because we just couldn't get it together. Yeah, that's exactly right. And I think there are two challenges. We have to have better messages, better words we say, better, a better narrative and story to tell. And we have, over the course of time, won those battles. You know, that it sort of depends on the year and who's in charge. And Obama won them in 08 and he won them in 12 and he won them pretty easily. And we have lost them a couple times since then. We had a better message in 2018 than the Republicans. Our message about the Republicans wanting to get rid of the Affordable Care Act to pay for tax cuts for the rich was a very, very powerful message. And, and true. Yeah. And it, and it has the benefit of being true. That's what Obama would always say. It's like, let's start with what's true and then we'll work out from there. And that was a true thing. And Republicans had like caravan and, and blah. It was like insane. It did not work. But Ultimately, I use this sort of metaphor in the book, which is like whenever we don't win, people are like, why did the message fail? What was the strategic mistake we made? You know, and it's sort of give sort of like if you had a battle between one army with tanks and stealth bombers and drones, and whatever else, and another army who was armed with pocket knives and the pocket knife army loses, obviously goes back home and everyone's like, why do you have a better plan? It's like, that's not the problem. It's the weapons. And that's, and that's why I wrote the book was to try to convince us we have to go get better weapons. Someone, uh, a person in media who I respect after reading the, reading the, reading my excerpt of the book that came out right before the book came out of any fair thought I had a walking and chewing gum problem in the sense that I focused on the distribution of the message as opposed to the message itself. And my, and it's a fair point. Like I could have written a book that was about this is how Democrats could sell themselves. Um, but my argument to him was, is that there are a lot of people working on the words and the things we said. People are talking about all the time. They're polling. Can't walk down the street and not have someone ask you, talk to you about what the Democratic message should be. But not enough people are focused on, on what happens after we figure out those words. And so that's why I wanted to write the book about that, because I think that is the existential problem. That is why we are losing the message wards. It's not because we don't have, we can, we can always have better words, but that's not why we're losing. Because we're even losing when we have a better message right now because people aren't hearing our message. It is being drowned out. The topics of discussion of the things that voters focus on is being picked by a right-wing media based on what is best for Republicans, not on what is a real threat to this country. And so that's, that's what we have to change. That's the uh, asymmetry that we have to address. No, it's it's a major problem. I mean, I I don't think you have a walking chewing gum problem. I do think that the uh, the Democrats do have trouble with words. Honestly, yeah. I think we get really convoluted pretty quickly. We like to say fifteen words when there could be three. I think that that has become a problem, and I think personally that the politicians who speak the most like we do these days, like the Katie Porters and the Eric Swalwells and the Better O'Rourke's and even people like Mallory McMorrill, right? Who just came out of nowhere and everyone was like, yes, that, that is how we feel, right? These are the people that, that 
voters and non-voters are most connecting with because they say, that's exactly how I feel. That's exactly what I think. Like, why couldn't you just say it like that? And I think Democrats do sometimes get lost. And yes, how we present that message once we've got it is important. But I do think that they could spend less time on polls and more time thinking about how, you know, what their innate feeling is about something. The people you mentioned have one thing in common. I agree with you. All of them are stars. Is that they are politicians who arose in the post-Facebook age, right? There was a period around 2014 when Facebook became the dominant media platform for politics. And all of those people, Valerie Morrow, Swalwell, Beto, they lived in that world. They, they understand it. They understand that what Matt is, it's really hard to get attention. And you sometimes have to yell at the top of your lungs to get attention. And, the, and, what, and what matters is authenticity. You have to be your authentic self. Because if you just do a bunch of like, a tweet that reads like a focus group press release, like that's not going to go anywhere, right? Like you have, you need, you need virality and, and authentic, authenticity and virality are connected. And those people understand that. And it's harder for the politicians who come from a different era, either the pre-Facebook post-internet era, which is, I think is like 08 to 2014 or 6 to 2014. And then a lot of people you know, who are in the reins of power who come from a pre-internet period of politics who do not uh, under, fully understand how that works. It's not natural to that. And so these younger politicians are naturally better at this. And that's not an ageism thing. It's a, we're now in a different era yeah. thing. Um, and it's, you either, uh, you know, adapt or you um, cease to be effective. You argued recently on a podcast that I was listening to, and some people gave you some pushback, which I thought was funny, that you said that propaganda is just persuasive messaging. And it's a game and we have to get into it, right? And talk me through that thinking because I think propaganda, I think most people think of propaganda as being very negative, yeah. but it's really just persuasive focused messaging from a point of view. And if your point of view happens to be the point of view of truth, then how could it be a bad thing? That's exactly right. The problem with Fox, well, the main problem with Fox is that it, it pretends to be a news organization, but it's not that it is rightly propaganda. It's that it is racist, divisive, disinformation-based propaganda. And all, like, you can call it propaganda, you can call it content, you can say whatever you want. My view is that Democrats need to invest time, energy, money, intellectual capital in ways in which we tell our story on our terms to our voters. And there's a hesitancy among a lot in the party because that feels like propaganda. And propaganda in the context in which we really think about it, which is the way author- authoritarian Orwellian governments communicate with their people, is not what I'm saying. I don't, and, and there's a sense that propaganda comes at the, you know, sort of like in the authoritarian Kim Jong-un sense of the word, there's no free press. And then the only means of messaging is, quote unquote, it's persuasive messaging, so known as propaganda. That's not what I'm arguing here. Like, I don't think we, the press is going to be here. They should be here. I think it is in democratic politicians' interest to engage with that press uh, because that's another way of getting our message out. It just shouldn't be the only way. But we shouldn't be as scared of being called propagandist. Like, it's not investing in progressive media personalities and companies that do that are not spreading disinformation, are spreading the democratic message, but they're doing it in a factual way is good. That is a good thing. And we shouldn't be scared of it. And we have this, ref- this is, there's this natural, be afraid of propaganda. And like what we want to do is we want to tell our story. You can call it whatever you want. But just because someone says it's propaganda doesn't mean we shouldn't do it. 
Oh, Dan, I'm loving this. But as a podcaster yourself, you know we have to take a moment to thank the people who make this all possible. So let's just take a quick break and we'll be right back after this with Dan Pfeiffer. If you listen to the show, then you might be like, yeah, I've heard you talk about Athletic Greens before. But if you haven't already ordered it to try it for yourself, then I'm talking directly to you. Here's the thing. Athletic Greens really is as good as we say it is. I know a lot of podcasts talk about it, but it's a no-joke product. The thing is, Athletic Greens was created when the founder experienced a ton of gut health issues and ended up on a complicated supplement routine that was costing him over $100 a day. He created Athletic Greens as a response to how difficult and expensive it is to get optimal nutrition on your own. Most people take some kind of a multivitamin, but it's important to choose one with high quality ingredients that your body can actually absorb. With one scoop of Athletic Greens in water on an empty stomach, you get all the vitamins, minerals, superfoods, probiotics, adaptogens that your body needs. And it doesn't just serve your gut. It serves your immune system, your nervous system, your energy, recovery, focus, aging. It's recommended by professional athletes and trusted by leading health experts. And I can tell you from personal experience, it really works. To make it easy, Athletic Greens is giving you one free year of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com slash politicsgirl. That's athleticgreens.com slash politicsgirl to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate in daily nutritional insurance. So those of you who know me know I really love Blinkist. Blinkist is a book summarizing service that gives you the key insights from selections of nonfiction books in about 15 minutes. Blinkist has condensed over 5,000 titles and also produces shortcasts, which are blinks for podcasts. One of the things I think is super cool about Blinkist is when you become a Blinkist premium member, you get what are called the Blinkist Weekenders. The Blinkist Weekender is a curated list from the editors that give you the latest blinks, shortcasts, and collections, as well as suggestions for what they think you might enjoy over the weekend. They tie it into what's going on in the world, what's going on in the country, but they also base their suggestions on your bio and blinks you've already liked. Last weekend's collection for me included a book called Up Your Pub Quiz Game, which is a collection of absolutely fascinating points of interest that often end up in those trivia questions. And then when you know the answer, everyone's like, how did you know that? I love stuff like that. So it was pretty insightful of them to include that on my list. Right now, Blinkist has a special offer just for our audience. Go to Blinkist.com slash politicsgirl to start your seven-day free trial and get 25% off a Blinkist premium membership. That's Blinkist, spelled B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T dot com slash politicsgirl to get 25% off and a seven-day free trial. Do you want to get valuable knowledge and great ideas in quick digestible bites? Blinkist is for you. So people contact me all the time via email or social media to ask specific questions, but I rarely have the chance to answer all of them. So we're going to do an upcoming episode called Ask PG. If you have any questions about politics, America, messaging, even about me personally, shoot me an email or record a question via audio or video and send it to ask at politicsgirl.com. I will try to get to as many questions as I can. The podcast is only possible because you guys care enough to listen, and I want to speak directly to the community to make sure I'm addressing all of the things you're actually curious about. Again, send your questions to ask at politicsgirl.com. Now, back to the show. And you know what? Finally, you lay out a bunch of solutions in your book. 
you know, what people can actually do, which I think is very useful to people, Democrats, independent press, politicians themselves, anyone who cares about democracy, right? And I don't want you giving away the book because I think everyone should go out and buy it. But can you give us some insight on the hopeful solution aspect? Because it's overwhelming, right? So in the book, as you point out, I lay out sort of the things we can do. And I do come at this with perspective of, I would say, realistic optimism is I'm very aware of the tremendous challenge we have. But there are, and I discovered even more of this when I started doing research on the book, is there are a lot of people having some real success doing really smart things to push back against the mega megaphone, right? The fact that you and I are having this conversation is because I believe you're one of those people, right? And And I I see them everywhere, right? There is the example of Career News, which is a series of local progressive journalistic outlets that are filling a gap and fighting back against right-wing disinformation at the local level. There are currently more than a thousand right-wing disinformation websites masquerading as local news. There are eight progressive local media sites. Eight's better than zero, right? And if you get those eight to work, you can get 16 and so forth. And so I try to offer people an argument for why the solution to this is building a progressive megaphone. I talk about what donors can do and what all of us can do, regular, regular people, right? How we can support that. I talk, I talk about what democratic politicians can do to nurture that ecosystem and why that's essential. I offer some guidelines for how all of us progressives can be smarter about how we give our attention online. Because one of the true malicious strategies of Republicans is hijacking liberal outrage for online engagement. And we are accidentally spreading the Republican message all the time. And so there's a chapter in the Get You Guidelines on that. And then, like I mentioned, I referenced a little bit earlier, but the end, like for everyone who is upset about the press coverage that Joe Biden's not getting credit for the stuff he's doing, or they're not telling enough story about, you know, the bad things Republicans are doing, we have the power to do more than be angry about it, right? We have agency. If you have access to the internet, you're, the average person has 150 to 200 contacts. You know, it could be the people on your phone, your phone contacts, your Facebook friends, Instagram followers, Twitter, whatever social media platform of choice, whoever, just your family group chats, right? You have the ability to influence people. The election was decided by 40,000 people, right? A couple hundred of us doing the right thing, pushing the right message and convincing just a few people in our networks could be the difference between Joe Biden getting reelected and Donald Trump taking over in 2024. And so like we have that power. And I think we just have to, like everything can feel so overwhelming and impossible to achieve. And the individual person has no agency, but we do. And there is, and the thing I try to tell everyone is there is a study talking about in the book, the amount of faith that people have in news articles they receive is not based on where the article came from, right? Whether it's the New York Times or Fox News or the, or the Wall Street Journal, it is based on the person who shared it with them. And so you have people in your life who trust you. And they are going to take that information that you share them, whether you text it to them, they see it in your Facebook feed or whatever else, they're going to trust that more than if they just see it on their own. And like that is power. That is power that we have to influence what is happening. And, you know, if just, we just... We know this is going to be a very close election, no matter what else happens in 2022 and 2024. And we probably maybe the main reason I wrote the book is to give people the sense that they have the ability to do something about this. And you don't have to wait for someone in Washington to tell you how to do it. You can just you can do it on your own. And a lot of a lot of the really interesting things about people I cite in the book who've done it did it on their own. No one asked them to do it. They just started and they found an audience and they built that audience. And 
you know, I hope that people like it can, like it is dark and depressing at times to deal with, to understand like just how devious and dangerous and how far ahead the Republicans are. But I hope people leave the book with hope that we have a bill, we have the ability to fight back each and every one of those people. If we do what we can, we can, we can beat that. We can beat Fox and Facebook. I believe that too. I mean, looking at that one six hearing, you know, this week, just watching it come down. We've watched over the course of time while the Republicans have rewritten the day of the insurrection, you know, their pundits and their leaders and their spokespeople just telling us a million different things and the spin about what happened as if we didn't watch it with our own eyes. And like so many things, the right wing is attempting to gaslight us against what we witnessed. But now that we're into the hearings, I'm feeling more hopeful than I have felt in so long that we might have the opportunity to rewrite this narrative and from a place of truth, but also, like you're saying, to share it with other people yeah. to say, hey, watch this. Watch this. It's coming up on this Wednesday. It's coming up on this week. It's coming up here. Watch it and watch it unfold, not because you're being told what happened, but because you're actually witnessing what happened. And I feel like for the first time, we might be able to crack through some of the propaganda. And that makes me feel very hopeful, um, you know, about messaging and about beating disinformation. Um, now, since the Democrats don't do what the Republicans do and buy 500,000 left-wing books and store them in closets so that Don Jr. and Kellyanne Conway become best-selling authors, um, you actually have to do this on merit. So where do people buy your book and how can they get you it? You can get it anywhere you get books, but if you go to battlingthebiglie.com, there are links to buy it at big booksellers like Amazon and Barnes & Noble, but also sites that will allow you to buy it from your local bookstore, uh, which I always uh, encourage everyone to use your independent bookstores who need all the help they can get in this economy. Um, so hope everyone checks out the book. I think you will better understand that why we're having such political challenges right now and some, and some actionable ideas on how we can fix them. And if people want to follow you or your insight or a project that you're into right now, how can they do that? What's the best way to follow you? Dan Pfeiffer. You can follow me on Twitter at Dan Pfeiffer, or you can, I have a, uh, a newsletter uh, where I offer messaging advice and polling analysis for Democratic activists uh, and Democratic politicians. Anyone who cares about politics, I think, would find it useful. And that is at messagebox.substack.com. I find it useful. Good. This is validated. I feel better. Yes. There you go. Well, Dan, I want to thank you so much for joining me today. As you say, the right wing is waging this war on objective truth. And right now they're winning and we can fix that, right? We can't sit here in this fundamental lack of understanding of how much they're using the message machine against us. We have to put in the work against this weaponized disinformation and talk to our people and solve some problems. Because if we build the progressive megaphone, as you said, if we nurture that ecosystem, then maybe we don't have to have Americans living in two different realities anymore because that's completely unsustainable. So thank you for being here with me today. I'm such a big fan of your work and the work of the people at Crooked Media. And I'm just thrilled to have finally had the opportunity to chat with you. Well, thanks for having me. It was fun. So that was Dan Pfeiffer, author, host, and political problem solver, reminding us that we all have a role to play in countering disinformation. As he writes, a functioning democracy depends on a shared understanding of reality. And his book is a roadmap on where we, including politicians and mainstream media, can go moving forward. As one reviewer called it, battling the big lie is part guide, part battle plan, and a little bit of therapy. We all have the power to get the message out there. Maybe we don't waste our time on our most Trumpian uncle, but at the very least we convince two of our non-voting friends to get engaged and counter his vote. Dan makes it clear that it's essential the powers that be nurture and grow the progressive megaphone. 
that the upcoming elections are going to be tight and the difference between winning and losing our country might just come down to your voice. I'd like to thank Dan Pfeiffer for being with us today and you for caring enough about democracy to be here. Now go out and make the world a better place. Until next week, PG out. The Politics Girl podcast is written and performed by me, Lee McGowan, in partnership with the Midas Media Network and produced and edited by Happy Warrior Entertainment. All rights reserved. I'm Andy Siegel. Welcome to my new podcast. Sandwiches of many varieties. Each episode, I serve up a different theme. Boy bands. Yeah, girl. Losers. I lose the battle. Teachers. Now we're gonna read a book. It's The Moth Meets the Muppet Show, with maybe Nightline in there as well. I'm Ted Couple. Sandwiches of many varieties. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs>